Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. In a recent article in Scientific American, Ian Golden and Chris Kutarna speculate that history may well be repeating itself. Interestingly, it is not any person or the fact of an event that leads them to this supposition, but the qualities of the events we experience that link us to prior eras, specifically the Renaissance in their opinion. It seems every day we wake up to a new shock. Shock is our own personal proof of historic change, a psychic collision of reality and expectations, and it has been the relentless theme of all our lives. It agitates and animates us. It will continue to do so. This affect of shock is being described as a shared quality. Furthermore, it is a quality of force. That would imply specific causes. If both the Renaissance and our own era are driven by such shocks, would it be possible to identify and quantify the causes? And from there, could one instrumentalize and consciously control the environmental forces that shape the development of history? Can processes that are so involved with human subjectivity even be submitted to a rigorous scientific inquiry? Back in 1927, Russian painter Kazimir Malevich was arguing that he had, at least in the case of the creative process, identified and isolated a quantum, the fundamental particle engaged in these forces of history. He called it the additional element. Last time, we briefly noted that in his study of the recent development of art, the shocks of his own age, he had identified the fibrous line of Cezanne, the sickle-shaped line of Cubism, and the straight line of Suprematism. Today, we step further into his analysis of how different types of additional element work themselves upon the artistic output of students enrolled in his classes. Malevich started with the basic premise that life seeks constantly to set up norms. An organism at one scale or an ecosystem at another, one could also say a building, strives to balance the forces of its own needs with those of the world around. This striving for balance that the painter articulated as fundamental to much in life, but specifically to development in painting, was the same principle of equilibrium and energy exchange 
that the metabolist architects of 1960s Japan would independently advocate. Through this mode of understanding, for each relation of organism to environment, that is to say, for every life, one can describe characteristic shapes and forms, and analysis of these shapes and their development is what we call morphology. The concept had already been well established in biology, initiated by Goethe's examination of bones, stones, and plants. The German polymath was largely interested in the origins and future states of shape. Malevich, on the other hand, was studying morphological dynamics, investigating what caused change and how these triggers worked. In biology, even after Darwin identified natural selection as a promising mechanism for development, the rates of change were simply too slow for observation of the process to be practical. It wasn't until the 1950s, with bacteriological investigations foreshadowing the era of genetic engineering, that evolutionary biology entered the realm of experiment. However, with the production of art, all that one required for observing how environment affected the organism was to present controlled sets of shapes to the eye, possibly verbally, and observe what the artist's hands painted. The supposedly natural selection of forms in the execution of painting was taken out of the realm of pure inspiration and treated as a set of variables and forces subject to control. Malevich had seen art develop, as it were, at a rapid pace in the wild, from Impressionism to Primitivism, passing through Cubism and Expressionism into the abstract. The muses were now brought into the lab. He had been observing a progressive wave of change, where what had been previously considered abnormal became normal as an old system of equilibrium, an old species of art, was confronted by a new environment and replaced by life forms with new characteristics. He stated that, The cause of this phenomenon lies in the antagonism of two coexistent artistic pictorial norms. There was art, red in tooth and claw. The field upon which this antagonism played out was not, of course, the jungle or savanna, but the human mind. Not only did this recognition make experimentation feasible relative to natural selection, it also made it tantalizingly difficult due to bias and subjective perception, even as it underlined the incredible power latent within the discovery 
and application of these dynamics to human life. Malevich was quick to point this out. Our conception of reality is likewise changeable and depends upon the interplay of those elements of reality which, as they make their appearance, are subject to one kind of distortion or another in the mirror of our consciousness, our brain, since our ideas and conceptions of matter are always distorted images having not the slightest relation to reality. Conceptions are malleable, but they can radically alter perception and change behavior. Change behavior in a controlled manner, especially on a large scale, and you change the world. In 1927, Malevich put it very plainly, If one were able to turn the individual brain centers on and off at will, it is conceivable that he could call forth a definite activity outside of consciousness through the mechanical action of a directing influence from person to person. And falling just one step shy of this remarkable imagining of controlled brain mapping, it was fully possible, then as it is now, to influence those brain centers through the triggers of the senses in the environment and through awareness in the individual. Packed within this germ of understanding was a promise of immense potential. Both the propagandistic images of the totalitarian East and the saturation of advertising, influential in the capitalist West, would put this basic theory into practice. What Malevich pursued in art, researcher Edward Bernays was doing for advertising in the same years. Considering the fact that the ad industry still runs at an enormously profitable scale, a more or less scientific identification of how additional elements trigger changes in perception and behavior does appear to be tremendously effective. As with Bernays, Malevich tied the perception of a steady environment to the successful political maintenance of the state. The painter argued that those who succumbed to regimentation within the state are held up as loyal supporters, while those who preserve unique consciousness and individuality are treated as dangerous. He thus situated the artist as a potential weapon for revolution. He calls the study of how such revolutions could be affected by means of representation to the senses psychotechnics, New radicalizing forms, alien to a given environment, are activating particles that can be compared with the effect of bacteria in the human organism. 
His mixing of metaphors is an indication of the broad generality of the principle. What he wants to understand in art is as analogous to a bouncing billiard ball as it is to a photon or an x-ray or to mutation and biological disease. From this general principle of how change happens, he immediately zeroes in on his specific territory. The additional element is the earmark of a culture, and it is expressed in painting by a characteristic use of the straight line and the curve. These qualities, synthesized, distilled, and assembled, representing verbs in languages of characteristic pattern and form, are the quantum particles of art that he wants to discover and observe. His identification of the additional element is drawn from the contrast between two systems. The observation of natural trees, or naturalistic painting, impacting the eye as distinct from the paintings of Cezanne, reveals a characteristic difference, what he calls the additional element of the fibrous line. If one were to subtract the realism of the trees from a Cezanne painting, traces of this type of line would be what remains. He diagrams this alongside other additional elements in a chart that almost resembles growth patterns within a petri dish. The fibrous additional element of Cezanne is drawn in a manner similar to a single hair or thread laid upon the surface. The middle of the line is mostly, but only roughly, straight. At either end, it hooks off into a limp-looking strand. It is almost as if Malevich were imagining the images within a Cezanne painting to have been pressed into patches of wool or matted strands of grass. The cubist line, derived from the differential between Cezanne's work and cubism, is represented as two parts. One part is a single perfectly straight vertical, hooking off from this, starting one-third up from the bottom end, is a half-circle. The two lines, once connected, form the sickle he describes. Many art historians have understood the difference between Cezanne and Cubism to be an outgrowth of a will to abstraction, a development of planar surfaces interconnecting within the visual image. However, by using Malevich's system, one can see the dynamics of this transition with greater detail. There certainly is a fascinating development of planar surface in Cezanne's work, and it doesn't have the stained-glass window quality of the visual segments in Cubism. Instead, it retains a softer, more swept and interwoven look, consistent 
with Malevich's identification of the fibrous line. Suprematism's additional element is represented by a single straight line, jettisoning the hook of the sickle in cubism, resulting in a pared down and total abstraction. Identifying these contrasts, he then conducted experiments on his students. He analyzed their work prior to the experimentation to ensure that he could set up control groups of sorts. He was able to diagnose the influences that were already evident in their painting. Aware that he was dealing with influence on form that could come via both the conscious and subconscious mind, he divided students into two groups, one fully aware that they were supposed to integrate new forms, and another that was merely exposed to images without any explicit instruction. He observed how both sets of students who had, at the outset, painted in the style of Cezanne, progressed on very similar paths towards cubist forms but that the conscious group went faster and further. He argued that late Cezanne thus represented the limits of intuitive pictorial representation. To progress in art that included abstraction would require conceptual awareness of the process, the ability to double-blind a test fully into cubism and beyond, was thereby completely lost. But he continued to observe the dynamics of additional elements. He did, however, note that as students progressed and absorbed the new forms, repeated conscious demonstration had far less impact on behavior. The changed patterns were established, and a new, unconscious norm was asserting itself. In a separate case, he tested the impact of two pictorial cultures, described in a very pharmacological manner. I prescribed for a painter who leaned strongly towards Cezanne a large dose of the cubist combination of the curve and the straight line from various stages in the development of all four phases of cubism. The simultaneous effects of two pictorial cultures, that of Cezanne and that of cubism, attained in this way shook powerfully the artistic conceptions and methods of representation of the painter. An object being represented changed its proportions under the influence of the sickle form of cubism. Certain lines dropped out of the visible object temporarily, and then, however, the object reappeared as such and in its entirety. Here, he demonstrated how influences can vie for dominance within the individual. He called it a vacillation between analysis and synthesis. This bivalence 
was also supposedly observed in the personal affect of the painter, alternating between excitement and disenchantment, distinct from his once steady and cheerful self. Malevich noticed that he was absorbed in a straining activity while painting as he attempted to reconcile the conflicting elements in his artistic output. His solution reads like titrating a new medication. Thereupon, I increased the dose of cubist additional elements until an impediment became apparent in the work, and finally, pictorial paralysis set in, so to speak. Evidently, the solution cannot be reached in a purely theoretic way. Theory serves only as a kind of foundation within the framework of consciousness, but the final solution always remains reserved for the subconscious, or superconscious, for the emotions or feelings. When dealing with the mind in this way, exposure and influence, both conscious and unconscious, were closely watched. Subjects were isolated from additional elements for part of their experimental set. Admission of error in experimental process is often an indication of methodological strength, and sometimes these dynamics were described in ways that sounded like a spill in a chemistry lab or a process of metallurgy. In one case in which the isolation was broken, a cubist element happened to get into the suprematist system, and it so disturbed the unity of the painting that a pictorial substance of a Cezanne-like consistency even became recognizable. Remarkably, he appears to be discovering a principle of conservation of matter, energy, and artistic form. Malevich even describes a matrix-like grid, a table of recorded observations that he regrettably does not reproduce in the published essay. Artists of various types were exposed to distinct additional elements in different combinations and the results. The forms of synthesis were then recorded, supposedly revealing a map of transformation with specific causes. Central to all of this was a very daring crossover between two disciplines often perceived as totally separate, if not antithetical, art and science. As we can infer from his descriptions of methodology, Malevich was likely aware of this mud he couldn't avoid stirring up as he dove for the pearls. As it turns out, he argued for a firm distinction between them. He viewed the products of science, those being hypothesis, theory, and technology, as temporary. True art 
he argued, was eternal. At the same time, he was obsessed with applying the methods of science to art in order to push it further. And through this action, he intended the result of a society transformed by artists in a way that scientists could only dream of. Join us as we look to Malevich's vision of scientific art transfiguring the mind and world next time on Lapsus Lima.